This is Eve Lazarus, and this is Cold Case Canada, the unsolved murder of Danny Brent. Cold Case Canada is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus, a reporter and author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. Sam Bale, the 20-year-old greenskeeper at the University of British Columbia golf course, was horrified when he came to work on the morning of September 15, 1954, and found that a car had driven across the west edge of the green and left deep furrows in his carefully manicured grass. Sam followed the tyre marks and found Danny Brent's bullet-ridden body dumped near a clump of bushes just west of the 10th green. He called the police. Danny Brent was lying on his right side, his forearms and hands folded under his chest. He was wearing a red plaid shirt, grey trousers, argyle socks and brown shoes. Stuffed inside his shirt was an early edition of the newspaper, soaked with his blood. There was a half-smoked cigarette inside his shirt where it had dropped from his mouth when he was shot, once in the back and twice in the head, with a forty-five caliber bullet. Danny Brent's murder was the city's first gangland-styled execution in the fight for control over Vancouver's drug fiefdom, and it caused a sensation in the press. Headlines promising the inside story on Danny's murder and pictures showing police probing clues were splashed across the front pages of the daily newspapers and provided true crime grist for the Mickey Spillane fans of the time. There was an assortment of sketchy characters surrounding Danny. Two ex-wives, rumours of a married girlfriend and a Chicago-based drug syndicate. The plot wasn't bad either. There were the hired killers from out of town, the attempted murders of two other Vancouver drug lords, and a role for Walter Mulligan, the corrupt chief of police, who would be kicked off the force the following year. In 1954, Vancouver was filled with after-hours gambling joints. Bootleggers thrived and the Globe and Mail reported that Vancouver had 2,000 known drug addicts and scores of peddlers. Vancouver's population was just under 400,000, and the police department was staffed with less than 700, working under Chief Walter Mulligan. George Garrett was an investigative reporter for CKNW for 40 years. He arrived in Vancouver from Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, and started work in 1956, two years after Danny Brent's murder. I first met George in the early 1990s when I was starting out as a reporter with the Vancouver Sun. George was nearing the end of his career at CKNW at the time, and he was a bit of a a god in the industry and, and certainly a mentor for a lot of us younger journalists. More recently, he's become a good friend, and I was delighted when he said he'd come on the podcast and and talk a bit about what it was like in the 1950s, reporting on police corruption and Vancouver's seedy underbelly. What were you reporting on when you first started with CKNW? 
I was in the newsroom. All new recruits were working on, on the desk. Uh, we called it the, the co-pilot position. The guy on the left was the pilot mm-hmm. and uh, in charge. And my job was to make phone calls, to do phone checks, and get stories you know, on the phone and do the newscasts on the half hour. And then eventually they put me out on the news feed. And that's where it really started to happen for me. Were you covering police back then? Oh, yes. Yeah, we had a, a microphone down at the police station, and eventually they had a press room, so I was in and out of there all the time. Uh, at one time in my career on the police radio, a guy said, I think Detective Garrett is listening. <laughs> I had a police radio in my car. <laughs> well, what was the, your thoughts about Vancouver back then, and, and particularly the Vancouver Police Department? Well, I was a kid from the prairies, you know, and I hadn't been around big city news, and I was just overwhelmed by the the stories about uh, drug trafficking and what had gone on prior to my arrival here, which, of course, was the Walter Mulligan probe, Chief Mulligan, 1955. The uh, tougher inquiry had just concluded, I think, in early 1956 or maybe late 55, and I started in February of 56 on here. Danny Brent was murdered a couple of years before you got here. 54. You mentioned that it was really, really well known still. And I'm curious why a mid-level drug dealer like Danny Brent would have got so much attention. Well, they call Vancouver the uh, drug capital of Canada. And I think partly because of the Danny Brent murder, it was a national story. And uh, senators became interested in it. And Chief Mulligan had to go to Ottawa and appear before a Senate committee and explain why so much was happening in the drug trade and uh, why weren't the police doing more about it. And uh, Senator Harry Reid, who was certainly well-known out here, made the statement that Vancouver was the drug capital of Canada, which, of course, got a lot of attention. I think it was, too, because drugs flourished here, particularly heroin, and to some extent later on marijuana, but heroin was the big thing. Vancouver in 1956, we've got the, the top cop of police that's just been through a royal commission and got off. Yeah, he was never charged. Mm. Speaking about Walter Mulligan? Yes. He was never charged, but the accusations were made by uh, newspaper stories. And some reporters at the Vancouver Sun had known about it for some time, but the Sun didn't have the jam to publish it. So one of their ex-reporters, uh, Raymond Monroe, began working for a little tabloid called Flash, and he's the one that broke many of the stories about the chief taking bribes from bootleggers and gamblers. And the way it worked was that he would appoint the people he wanted to run the squads for gambling and bootlegging and the liquor squad, and they were on the payroll. And he would split the money with them. When it became stories in the newspapers, it was a major thing in Vancouver, of course. Mm-hmm. And then uh, a, a royal commission was established under Judge Reginald Tuffer. In the meantime, uh, Mr. Mulligan uh, decided he would just leave town. He was under suspension, but he wasn't criminally charged. So he left town and came out in the evidence that although married, he had a paramour. (laughs) What a wonderful word. So he probably would have been okay if he wasn't having an affair. Yes. You know, that's 1950s. And things that were shocking then are not shocking now. Probably nothing is now. If you're enjoying Cold Case Canada, why not buy Eve a coffee? Go to evelazarus.com. At the age of 42, Danny Brent was becoming a big part of the drug scene. On the day that he bled to death on the university golf course, 
He was also the head waiter at the Press Club on Beatty Street in Vancouver and Vice President of the Service Employees Union, Local 740. People like Danny, even his ex-wives. At the time of his death, he was renting a room from his first wife on West 15th Avenue. He was hard-working and popular with both his employers and his colleagues. He was a nice guy, a press club bartender told a reporter. He could always talk a drunk out of the club. He never had to fight with them. Danny was also known to carry a big wad of money on him, usually between $2,000 and $3,000. Now, I looked that up to see how much that sum of money would be worth in today's dollars, and it's a staggering $20,000, a hell of a lot of money for a bartender to carry on him in cash. Danny was born in Edmonton, Alberta. His first stint behind bars was in 1929, when Danny, just 17, was caught stealing. He moved to British Columbia and spent another two years in a jail cell in Kelowna, B.C., after being caught for breaking and entering. He moved back to Alberta in 1941 and soon afterwards robbed Henry Bergson's sons of $50,000 worth of jewellery. Police found the stolen goods buried in the backyard of one of his relatives. Danny was convicted of receiving stolen property and sentenced to five years in jail. He appealed the conviction, and his sentence was increased to seven years. When he got out, after serving the full seven-year sentence, Danny moved to Vancouver. Since then, he'd managed to stay out of jail, just not out of trouble. Danny worked at the press club at Dunsmere and Beatty Streets, just up the street from the Sun Tower. As its name suggests, the press club attracted members of the press but also police and lawyers, and people like Vancouver coroner Glenn MacDonald, who would investigate Danny's death. Danny dealt in brown heroin, which he bought in bulk from importers in eastern Canada, who in turn obtained their supplies from Mexico. He bundled the heroin up in 50 capsule lots and hired a guy to plant the bundles at the foot of various trees along English Bay in Vancouver's west end. The guy was paid $20 for each planting, and Danny would then sell the location of each plant to street pushers. If you're like me and enjoy tales from the darker side of history, then get yourself on a forbidden Vancouver walking tour. Your guide will share tales of mobsters, riots, corruption, bootlegging, hidden treasure and unsolved murder as you explore Vancouver's most interesting nooks. From the back streets and alleyways of Victorian Gastown to the forested trails of Stanley Park. Forbidden Vancouver's had over 1,500 five-star reviews on TripAdvisor and are winners of the prestigious City of Vancouver Heritage Medal of Honour. Book tickets at ForbiddenVancouver.com and save 15% on your booking using the code COLDCASE. On the night of his murder... Danny started his shift at the press club at 8.45pm. He worked until shortly before 1am and left carrying a copy of that morning's Vancouver News Herald with a nearly completed crossword puzzle. Witnesses told police that after leaving the press club, Danny met up with a woman at the Mailing Supper Club, a Chinatown cabaret on the corner of Main and East Pender Streets. He parked his car a red 1950 Meteor convertible, in the parking lot at the back of the building. Another witness who was in the club that night 
Topolisi had seen Danny leave with a woman and two other men through the back door. A few minutes after the fall at the club, customers said they heard a loud bang coming from the parking lot. They told police that it sounded like a firecracker or a car backfiring, and they didn't bother to investigate. Police believed that Danny slid behind the wheel of his car, lit up a cigarette, and was shot in the back by one of the men. The first bullet pierced his spine at a downward angle, and then tore a hole in his liver before it came out his navel. Dr. Harmon, the pathologist, said he could have lived up to half an hour after this shot was fired. From the reports of the bullets recovered at the crime scene, the pistol used was likely a Colt Model 1911 semi-automatic. Millions of them were manufactured for World War II. This was a large combat handgun, much more powerful than the 38 Special Revolvers issued to Canadian police at the time. Few civilians would have legally owned one of these in the 1950s. From the tyre tracks embedded in the golf course, investigators determined that the killers had driven onto the course from University Boulevard, down the fairway and across to the west edge of the green. They dragged Danny out of the car, dumped him near some bushes and shot him twice in the head. The second bullet was fired into his head from behind the right ear. The third went through both cheeks. The killers got back into the car and drove back the way they'd come. Police found the flashy convertible the next day, abandoned in the 3500 block of West 11th Avenue, only about a dozen blocks from where Danny's body was found on the UBC golf course. The University of British Columbia is just over 10 kilometres from Chinatown. If you spread out your right hand over a map of Vancouver, UBC would be your thumb at the western tip of the city. The campus covers over 400 hectares and it's stunning. It's surrounded by forest on three sides and ocean on the fourth, and it would have been really remote in 1954, so not a bad place to dump a body. When Vancouver Coroner Glenn MacDonald arrived at the golf course that morning, he found city police, forensics and investigators already at the scene. Once Danny's body was taken away, police started to search the area for evidence. Bobby the Royal Canadian Mounted Police tracker dog was brought in from Surrey, BC to help. Police found a bullet from a 45 semi-automatic buried 10 inches in the ground underneath the spot where Danny's head had been. The second bullet was only buried two inches deep, stopped by the thick sod. They found a piece of gold filling from his tooth embedded in the grass. Time of death was estimated to be between 2 and 3 a.m. This may see the start of an all-out gang war, Coroner MacDonald told reporters. Province reporter and photographer Ray Munro had received a tip about the body and arrived at the crime scene shortly after MacDonald. He walked to the tenth hole, a short walk through the fog from the road. This is how he described the scene in his memoir, The Sky's No Limit. Two detectives and three groundsmen were there, and so was Danny Brent, dead, with three bullet holes in his body, which was twisted up like a discarded rag doll. Whoever pulled the trigger wanted to leave a highly visible message that whatever Brent had done to deserve such an end would not be tolerated. The killers made no effort to hide the body or disguise Danny's identity. Robbery was quickly ruled out. 
While there was only $2.05 in change in his pocket, he was still wearing an expensive wristwatch, a gold ring on the fourth finger of his right hand, and a gold band mounted with a black stone on the ring finger of his left hand. Four days after his murder, police opened a locker in the Vancouver bus depot and found 30 ounces of heroin with a street value of $175,000. And again, I looked that up in today's dollars, and that's a whopping $1.7 million. It was quickly apparent that there was more to Danny than head waiter and union official. Either he was killed by a gang trying to take over the heroin industry, or more likely he was murdered by a hit team because he had reneged on a drug debt. As detectives questioned dozens of drug dealers and addicts, a picture started to emerge of a struggle for control of the Vancouver drug trade. But none of the suspects identified by the police department could be tied to Danny's murder. One of reporter Ray Munro's sources told him that he worked for Danny pushing heroin until two days before his death, and that Danny was second from the top in a drug wholesaling outfit that sold well-diluted heroin to distributors, who then cut it again and sold it to the street pushers, who then doubled the amount by adding milk sugar and sold it to the addicts. Danny, wrote Munro, had been told to stop operating west of Granville Street, a north-south thoroughfare that effectively divided the city in two. Jacob Leonhart fronted for the branch of the mafia that smuggled the stuff into the city. Leonhardt claimed the territory as his own. According to Munro, Danny was also having serious problems with William Semenek, another major drug mover. As investigators continued to run down leads, police had Danny's abandoned car towed back to the police garage and police scientists spent several hours in a search for evidence. The folded newspaper stuffed inside Danny's shirt to stop his blood from getting on the car seat didn't do the job. There were bloodstains in the car, and officers also found bits of grass from the golf course. A sign sat under the wipers reading, Don't touch, until fingerprints could be processed. But in the end, only Danny's fingerprints and blood were found. Two days after the murder, RCMP officers were back scouring the crime scene with the help of a metal detector, hoping to find the murder weapon or any object accidentally dropped by the killers. But the gun that killed Danny Brent wouldn't be found for another 24 years. On November 3rd, less than two months after Danny Brent's murder, the drug war heated up again with the attempted murder of William Semenek, a 50-year-old career criminal. It was the second attempt on his life. The first had occurred in 1950 when killers slipped into the backyard of his home on West 10th Avenue and fired two shots at him through the kitchen window. Both of them missed. Semenik had since separated from his wife Dorothy and their two small children and was living at the Buchan Hotel on Harrow Street where he was picked up around midnight and then driven to Stanley Park to be murdered. Semenek told police that while his kidnappers were driving through the West End, one with a gun against his ear, he managed to edge sideways until he got the door handle under his elbow. When the car slowed down near Lumberman's Arch in Stanley Park, Semenek pushed the door open 
and he and his would-be assassin fell out of the car. As he ran from the car, one bullet ripped through his hat, while the second hit him in the arse. That would likely have been the end of Semenek, but for Police Constable Bill Lindsay, who was making a routine drive through Stanley Park right at that moment. He heard the gunshots, saw a car speeding away without its lights, and a man plunge into the bush. Then he saw Semenek staggering towards him, calling, Help me, I'm shot. You remember when uh, uh, Bill Semenek was shot in Stanley Park? Yes. Uh, As it happens, I know the policeman who came on the scene. Uh, His name is Bill Lindsay. Uh, He was on the mounted squad then, and he heard shots in Stanley Park and uh, investigated, and and here comes Bill Semenek yelling, I've been shot, I've been hit. So he got Semenek an ambulance, and in the meantime, uh, the caretaker at the nearby yacht club noticed there was someone in the water. It was a guy named Eddie Sherbin who was hiding in the water, clinging to a boat, and uh, the police subsequently charged Eddie Sherbin and another well-known criminal named Joe Marcoux with attempted murder of Bill Semenek. But when it came to a trial, Semenek became known as Silent Bill because he said, if I uh, talked, if I spilled the beans, uh, I wouldn't be able to survive in prison. So he never did talk. 22-year-old Eddie Sherbin and Joseph Marcoux, 28, from Manitoba, were charged with attempted murder. While Semenek was recovering in hospital from his gunshot wound, police charged him with another trafficking offence. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison after being told by the judge that only his age and a recent heart attack saved him from the maximum 14-year term. Semenek may have earned the nickname Silent Bill, and refusing to talk may have kept him alive, but it cost him another three months tacked onto his sentence for his attempt to obstruct justice. In another interesting twist at the trial, Constable Joseph Hayward, who had been on the police force for only one year, was tasked with guarding Semenek while he was in hospital. The 27-year-old constable took an off-duty job then moonlighting as a driver and bodyguard for Semenek without informing his superiors and later testified in court that he was gathering evidence in his undercover role. Semenek fought Hayward's evidence claiming that the rookie officer had only become an undercover agent after he was caught being a criminal. Shortly after Semenek was safely tucked away in jail, Jacob Leonhardt, a leader of another faction of Vancouver's drug world, was almost killed when a homemade bomb with dynamite wired to the ignition of his car shredded his expensive Buick in the driveway of his home at Heather Street and 41st Avenue in Vancouver. The explosion, which was felt nearly a mile away, blew out the windows of Leonhardt's home and that of his neighbours. The car's hood was found in the backyard of a neighbour, It had been blasted right over the Leonhardt's garage. A front fender, a rear door and a seat were strewn in a line to the left of the car. The sliding doors of the garage were blown off, part of the roof was shattered and there was broken glass everywhere. Leonhardt, 38 years old, was thrown 10 feet by the blast and lost a leg in the explosion. Police found a rifle with a telescopic sight in the back of his mangled car. Neighbours told reporters that Jacob and Pauline had two children, a baby called Jack and a seven-year-old girl called Sharon. The Leonhards had lived in the house for two years, but the neighbours were unsure what he did for a living. 
One said he thought Jacob was a carpenter. Another said he thought he was a taxi driver. Leonhardt was listed in the city directory that year as a car salesman. No one was ever charged with the attempted murder of Jacob Leonhardt. The other thing that I loved about that time, how everyone tried to blow each other up. Yes, in the uh, the drug dealers. Yeah, and car bombs, and you know, from the thirties right through the fifties. Yeah, but look at now, we've had more murders on the street than I can ever remember. Yeah, but they shoot each other now. It seems That's much true. easier. Yeah, they don't it? use bombs anymore. Uh, one of the, uh, the tactics years ago was nitroglycerin because it was it was handy for safe blowing. It's a lot of work to go to. It is. By the way, you did mention the coroner I knew very well, Glenn McDonald. He's the one that went to the Danny Brandt murder scene. He was a, a colorful character. He, he was a commander and the, the captain, I guess, in the Navy. He loved his booze, but uh, what an accommodating guy. He'd do anything for you. I do love his book. I've got it here on my bookshelf. Yeah, Why Am I Dead? Yep, one of my favorites. <laughs> yeah, I've made a reference in my book to a party, in the, a police party in the morgue one day. Glennis, the coroner's in the witness box, pretty well stoned. The glass of scotch on his right-hand side, playing in the accordion, and a cigarette dangling from his lips, lighted cigarette. Oh, my God, I wish I'd had a picture of <laughs> Dr. Harmon that did the autopsy. You know, we'd walk by for, for parties after murder cases, after the trial. That was a, sort of a, one of the favorite places to go for a party. It was the morning. We'd walk right by Doc Harmon cutting somebody up and dictating into a microphone what, what he was finding. The liver weighs so many grams, etc. But he would totally ignore us. By the end of 1954, Vancouver police were dealing with seven murders the highest count since 1948. And this didn't include Danny Brent, who was murdered outside the city's boundaries. In 1975, a homeowner raking under a hedge near his home in the 3100 block on West 11th Avenue found a rusted 45 calibre semi-automatic. He gave the gun to a friend who owned a gun shop on West 4th Avenue. The friend worked on the gun for a while and gave it up as a bad job and hung the weapon on a peg in his shop. There it stayed for another three years until a sharp-eyed police officer saw it and had it seized. The gun was found just a few blocks from where Danny Brent's car was abandoned after he was murdered more than 20 years before. While lab tests failed to prove that the rusty pistol was a murder weapon, ammunition found in the magazine matched the make of the ammunition used to kill Danny. The gun was also found close to where a search had been abandoned shortly following the murder. While pictures of the gun make a nice addition to the cold case files, Danny's murder remains unsolved. Why not buy Eve Lazarus a coffee? If you're enjoying Cold Case Canada, visit evelazarus.com. Cold Case Canada is based on original research that I conducted for my book, Cold Case Vancouver, The City's Most Baffling Unsolved Murders. If you'd like to join in the conversation about this and other murders, check out my Facebook group page, Cold Case Canada, and please subscribe to the podcast. I'm Eve Lazarus, and I'm a reporter and an author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. I host and produce Blood, Sweat and Fear, the story of Inspector Vance. Vance wasn't a police officer, as his title suggests. 
He was the first forensic scientist to work for a police department in Canada and certainly the first to carry a badge and a gun. Vance was so good that he was known as the Sherlock Holmes of Canada and his forensic skills were so advanced that in 1934 there were seven attempts on his life by criminals afraid to go up against him in court. Each episode follows a different major crime that Vance helped to solve. You can find Blood, Sweat and Fear on Apple, Podbean or your favourite podcatcher.